Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. This week, we're very happy to have the other half of the Jordan and Chris team of DP Review TV. Jordan Drake. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Awesome to be here, guys. We had Chris Nichols a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago, not a few weeks ago, and we wanted to have the two of you, and it didn't work out schedule-wise. And actually, it's a lot better because with Chris, we talked about cameras shooting still photos, and with you, we're going to talk about video because you're the video guy. Now, I want to start by showing my ignorance. Um, whenever I need to shoot videos, I use my iPhone because it's really easy. I rarely shoot videos, mostly short cat videos, but it's got good image stabilization. And as I move it around, I can see that the image stays pretty smooth. So I know nothing about how this works. Now, I live a few miles, as regular listeners know, from Stratford-upon-Avon, the home of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And when they perform in the theater, which is not right now, um, they do a filming and live broadcast of each play. And I've gotten friendly with the producer, and I've gotten to sit in uh, when they're doing the filming, and I look at the equipment, and not long ago I was thinking, these are these big cameras, and they're on tracks, or they're on booms, and do they work the same? Do they have the same kind of ISO and f-stop and focus that we use with the cameras we have? Well, that's the exact same technology and same techniques. The thing is, it's it's almost like video people and photography people don't want everyone to know how easy it is to transition from one to the other. <laughs> so they use completely different terminology from it. If you looked at the side of the camera, you wouldn't recognize a lot of the settings that we're used to dealing with. Uh, but the idea is exactly the same. Um, what will really throw a lot of photographers when they first see those giant broadcast cameras, you know, you're thinking like, what is this? Is this like a medium format sensor in this thing? You know, uh, and then you'll find out it's like half inch generally is very common, two thirds of an inch. So smaller than what you'd see on one of those little Sony RX uh, point and shoot cameras are the sensors in there, uh, which seems really counterintuitive because a lot of those cameras are, you know, 50 to $100,000 a pop looking at those. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the first one is uh, we hear about rolling shutter and I talk about it in our videos all the time, that kind of wobble that you'll see when you quickly pan a camera. Like your iPhone is a great example. You'll see that all the time. Is that uh, what you get when you when you shoot a propeller on an airplane when it looks bent? Exactly. Yeah. And okay. uh, you kind of get that while we look. Um, and those smaller sensors, they can scan out much, much faster. Uh, again, going back to your smartphone, that's why it can shoot, you know, hundreds of images a second and blend them all together for a really interesting look. So that's part of it. But the other thing is you want a big zoom a lot of the time if you're doing live theater. You know, I wouldn't want to be limited to like a 24 to 70 and a 70 to 200. They want to cover a lot of space. So I always liken it to those bridge cameras that were really popular maybe like 10 years ago. You know, the ones with the 24 times zoom and the 30 times optical zoom and stuff like that. You'll remember those had really tiny sensors. Um, but a big zoom range because they were able to do that. So if you actually look at the lenses that are attached to those, it will be, you know, like a seven millimeter to 200 millimeter lens on it, which would be equivalent to like a 30 to, God, you know, 700, 800 millimeter lens, uh, but generally very bright. That's how they're able to do that low light stuff. You know, you'll see a so lot of those bright lenses. In, what would be the, what would be the lowest F-stop that they can have? 
uh, a lot of those zooms will be f1.8 constant, f2 constant, uh, something like that. So that makes up for some of your deficiencies in that sensor size. Uh, so if you blend those two together, you get uh, something that doesn't have a lot of that rolling shutter wobble to it. You get a big zoom in it. Um, and one thing a lot of photographers, uh, it takes a little bit of wrapping their head around is I'm generally fighting when I'm shooting video for more depth of field where, you know, when I'm taking pictures, like I was just running around last week with a Sony 135 F 1.8. It's awesome. You know, knock everything out of focus. I was probably overusing the effect too much while I was taking pictures, <laughs> but in video, let's suppose we've got an actor who's pacing back and forth on stage for a monologue. You know, I don't want to bring in a world-class focus puller to be manually focusing while they're walking back and forth. I'd rather just have 10 feet of depth of field in the shot and let them move around and in that space. Uh, so that's why it's a little less critical to have those super big sensors. I mean, to make it topical, the Super Bowl was just the other day and there were a lot of people complaining online. What's with all these shots where there's one player in focus uh, or like just a person's face in focus? They were like, it's really distracting. Uh, and that's because they had large sensor cinema cameras on the sidelines. Uh, so they give you those really, they've been using them for years for like highlight reels and stuff, but they rarely use them actually to cut to in a live broadcast. And it's quite jarring because you can't tell what's going on in those situations. Uh, so for like live theater, live sports, things like that, that's why we see a lot of those giant cameras, big lens, but very small sensors. So we can keep a large amount in focus uh, in the shot. It's a good point because a couple of weeks ago I was watching a Blu-ray of one of the plays that was a couple of years ago and I noticed at one point they had the they have a camera on a boom at the right corner, right front corner of the stage relatively low and you could see the person who was lying on the stage as well as the person standing up all the way in the back and you lose the sort of depth with that because everything's in focus but it is an amazing amount of depth of field and it's not like they're overlighting when they do this. When they do these films of theater, they're using the normal lighting that they use. And that can be very dark sometimes. Yeah, and it depends on the range you're shooting. I would guarantee if they zoomed in for a close-up, uh, it's still going to be very, very shallow depth of field. But on a wide angle, with a 7mm lens, even if it yeah. is an f1.8 lens, you know, you throw a 7mm 1.8 on a full-frame body, if you focus past five feet, everything's going to be in focus in the shot. So those same principles apply uh, when you're using the video camera. And that's the great thing. You know, coming from a photographic background, you can take everything that you know about optics and, you know, the surface area of what you're recording to. And it does absolutely apply to video. You're just taking a whole lot of photos every second, you know, right. 30 or 24. Yeah. And so you talked about these lenses being a constant f-stop. That's so when they're zooming, you don't have any change in the light or the depth of field, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And photography, we're a lot more used to having variable aperture zooms because, you know, your shutter speed will drop a little bit, but you can compensate for that. But the last thing you'd want when you're shooting something live is for the exposure to drop when you zoom in for a close up. Uh, so you'll find generally video lenses are a constant brightness throughout the range. Or if they're not, uh, I've used some zoom lenses that I actually like quite a bit for video. Um, but I just shoot them at their slowest maximum aperture. So if it's like a 2.8 to 4, I just always shoot them at f4, and then I don't have to worry about re-exposing during the shot. So what about ISO in that sort of filming? Well, this is one of those things where I say it's uh, that different terminology gap for the exact same concept. Why, do they uh, still call it ASA? Uh, no, they're gain. 
So, ah, uh, which I think we might start to see in digital cameras in the future, actually, because it almost makes more sense. Right. We did an episode on ISO, um, I think, last year, and it was the first time I learned that there is no such thing as ISO, that it's just the sensor sees this and then the gain is applied or not. Exactly. Yeah. And um, that's what we're seeing with digital cameras right now. But to make it a little more photographer or actually cinematographer friendly as well, because we've had all of these digital movie cameras come out and people who were shooting motion pictures on film before are also used to using an ISO or an ASA standard. Uh, so they carried that forward. But a lot of my favorite cameras now, like uh, there's an S1H that's I'm using as a webcam right now. It'll let me choose. Are you going to use gain or are you going to use ISO uh, for your exposure? But the concept is exactly the same. Uh, zero gain is just the sensor recording at its normal level. And as you increase the number, you're just boosting that signal uh, more and more and more. So it's the exact same concept, but different terminology for it. Like if I can with a video camera, I'll always shoot at uh, zero decibels gain, which is exactly the same as the lowest ISO that your cam your still camera will natively give you, you know, 100 generally. I can imagine that if a camera manufacturer makes that change, the forums on DP Review are going to be full of people complaining about it, trying to explain why it's right, why it's wrong. And you're going to have wars between the two, the ISO versus the gain people. But to me, the gain actually makes more sense when you realize I, I started back in film in the 80s. So I, I remember ASA and it was a, an absolute value, a technical, almost a chemical value. And, and and for instance, I remember pushing Tri-X Pan um, to like 1600. So you would set the camera to meter as if it was 1600, then it would be developed differently. You'd get the extra grain. It was really luscious when you did that. Um, but the gain makes more sense. So we've started with a lot of complicated stuff. Let's get to the easy stuff. I know on my camera here, my X-T3, I can turn a little dial and I can start shooting video. But does that mean that everything just works like on an iPhone? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not even a little bit. <laughs> no, I, I, you certainly can use it in just a full auto, just like your iPhone does. But once you start dealing with a bigger sensor um, and that shallower depth of field is a really important thing uh, and shutter speed as well, it all handles differently from photo. So what I love with uh, what Fujifilm has done now, uh, it's not on the X-T3. I have an X-T3 as well that I love. But now with their new X-T4, X-S10, there's a toggle switch on it for photo and video. And it'll give you completely separate options for both because we don't expose the same way in video generally. Um, so there's... I'd, let's start with shutter speed because that's the biggest one that kind of breaks the brains of a lot of photographers yeah. when you come Yeah, over. because I'm looking at its movie mode is 29.97p. Why isn't it a round number? It actually has to do with sound sync going back to the, when they were the first 48 trying kilohertz. to put, Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So yeah. much of that stuff is, you know, largely irrelevant. You know, we're just editing on a computer right now. It doesn't matter old broadcast standards, but we need everything to be compatible. So we're still yeah. shooting 2997, 2398. Uh, it, it can be frustrating. And again, it seems like part of that hurdle where they should just default to like, hey, you're shooting 30 frames a second. You know, yeah. it can do 2997 under the hood. I think that would make more mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. But uh, we video people like to complicate things unnecessarily, it turns out. <laughs> so shutter speed, because you're shooting a certain number of images per second, but is the shutter speed one thirtieth of a second or is it one hundredth of a second, 30 times a second or what? Well, that's what's really interesting. So when you're 
we generally with photography, we want a shutter speed fast enough that we get a sharp image, depending on how much motion blur. You can use it creatively, drag the shutter on a pan or something like that. But generally, that's our objective. Uh, but if we're shooting a bunch of frames at the same time, uh, right now we're just, I'm using a webcam. Um, when we're talking to each other, obviously your listeners won't be able to see that. But if you wave your hand in front of your face, we see a blur. That's how our yeah. eyes interpret motion. Uh, if we shoot at 30 frames per second, a very fast shutter speed, like we would with photo, you know, we've got someone running, let's shoot at a thousandth of a second. You're going to see 30 sharp images of someone moving across the frame. It's not how our eyes actually see motion. Uh, so this is something that you'll hear people argue about all the time is, um, you know, a classic television or movie is always shot at a slow shutter speed to simulate the way that our eyes see motion. But our cameras, our smartphones, uh, your, if you just click your Fujifilm into uh, auto mode, it's going to choose a fast shutter speed to expose the image properly. And it gives you a very jerky look that people found off-putting for a very long time. But what's fascinating is we're just getting accustomed to it. You know, how many YouTubers are going to obsess over what's the correct shutter speed to properly expose an image? Uh, so mm -hmm. you'll see a lot of these jerky frame rates now, and uh, it doesn't bother people as much. We actually did an experiment where I totally misexposed an episode. It was our uh, Canon 90D review on DP Review. And then we waited to see how many people would notice because it drives me crazy if somebody shoots a video with that fast shutter speed staccato <laughs> kind of look to it. And almost no one did until we released an episode two days later, just like, guys, you know, we exposed this wrong. Um, you know, th there were a few other things that we did differently, but that was the big one that jumped out. So, you know, I say that there's these hard rules for video making, but it's, it's definitely evolving right now. The language of video. We're going to put links in the show notes to those videos so people can see it because that's really interesting. If we could actually see the difference. Um, one thing that I noticed, and if I look at the menus, there's a whole bunch of settings, the same kind of menus that I get for the camera. And one of them surprises me almost, and the reason I know that this is wrong is because I can see when I shoot with my iPhone that the color changes because the auto white balance changes as you move around, and the Fuji defaults to auto white balance, but you really don't want that, do you? No, depending on the situation, a static shot, sometimes it's okay. But let's imagine that I'm uh, doing a close-up shot right now and I'm wearing a dark shirt uh, and then I'm wearing blue pants and I cut to a wide shot of it. Uh, the white balance is going to factor that in and change the color between the two shots, uh, which means in post afterwards, just like you know, if you're matching a couple images on an event shoot, like a wedding shoot that you've shot on auto white balance as a photographer, you're going to have to match that whole sequence. We right. have to do the same thing in video. Where it gets very difficult is, let's say I pan the camera past a window or you know through a room of people dressed differently and the white balance is changing. Then afterwards, I have to try and adjust the color at the same speed roughly that the camera is doing it. And it's a huge headache. It's a ton of work. Where if I just shot it in one white balance and I panned past the subject, it'd probably be fine. But if I move past another light source, it's much easier for me to say, okay, that window's coming into frame. I'm going to start to add a little blue to the image at this point, instead of trying to do it at exactly the same rate the camera is. You'll see a lot of weirdness when people are trying to correct for that. So I do pretty much always shoot with a preset white balance on it. And it doesn't have to be exactly perfect because you can correct for it. But, you know, a lot of the time, if I'm outside, I'm daylight. If I'm inside, it's, you know, tungsten or daylight, whatever my light bulbs happen to be. And I just need to be in the ballpark. That's really key. 
talking about like exposing for a situation, I want to step back to shutter speed because we typically use shutter speed to uh, handle exposure. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about shutter speed in terms of blur and artificial motion effects, does that mean we should not be using shutter speed for exposure? Because I think that gets really confusing because, all right, my scene is too bright. I need to increase my shutter speed. And now I look like a robot or something while I'm walking. <laughs> totally. Uh, so the general rule, and I should have mentioned this right when we brought up shutter speed, is double your frame rate up to 60 frames per second is the classic rule. Uh, you know, If you were looking at a movie camera, it would expose half the length of the time the film was sliding through it. So it was moving at 24 frames a second, a 48th of a second is your shutter speed for natural looking motion. Um, like Kirk, you mentioned shooting uh, at... 30 frames per second, which is what your Fujifilm is set to, a 60th of a second will get you nice natural looking motion. Which seems slow when we think of it from the still camera point of view. But whenever I pause a Blu-ray or a DVD, you can see that there's motion, that every mm -hmm. frame is actually blurry. And we're in, a, we're in the sort of a simulation where we're seeing movement that doesn't exist because of the way the individual frames are exposed. Exactly. Yeah. I, it's such a headache for us doing a YouTube show. I have to pick thumbnails and sometimes I haven't shot one with a photo camera. So shuttling through, looking at every frame, trying to find one where our hands aren't moving and our face isn't moving to get a sharp frame can be really difficult. Mm. But if we were yeah. to play those clips back at their proper frame rate, you know, they look tack sharp. Everything looks fine in it. Uh, so when we're shooting in bright light, like outside, that's why you'll hear all of us video people clamoring for neutral density filters, because that's how we control, okay. you know, ah. indoor, indoors, ISO is your exposure adjustment, outdoors, neutral density is your exposure variable. My suggestion for photographers, grab a two and a three stop solid neutral density filter. They're very affordable. Uh, and then if you're in the shade, a two stop will generally cover you. If you're in cloud, a three stop will cover you. If you're in direct sunlight, stack them together, you get five stops ND. And that'll usually be enough for you to control that without going and investing in like a full set of filters or variable neutral density filters, a bunch of more expensive mm -hmm. stuff. Does the exposure compensation work in video? It does. Uh, but how I like to expose is um, if I'm indoors, I'll shoot the camera in manual mode with auto ISO. Let your ISO be your variable because then I'm choosing my aperture creatively for the depth of field that I want in the shot. My shutter speed's fixed because I don't want to be messing up my sense of motion in the shot. And then the shutter sense or the um, sensor sensitivity can be controlling how bright things are. And a lot of the new cameras are doing an amazing job of very smoothly adjusting exposure for you. Uh, so a lot of the time you'll see me doing a walk and talk outside with Chris and he's going in and out of trees, things like that. In those situations, I'll actually put on more neutral density than I need and set it to auto ISO, put on like eight stops of neutral density. And then it has so little light moving through, it's like we're back indoors and it can smoothly adjust the um, ISO in order to keep your exposure proper. What's really cool, uh, Sony have a series of cinema cameras that have an electronic auto neutral density filter. That is the greatest thing ever. I want it in photo cameras as soon as possible, but it's been like six years and we're still waiting to see it in a photo camera. Is that like what Fuji put into the X100F? 
similar, but that had a built-in uh, three-stop, I believe, if memory is uh, correct. I think two or three, yeah. Yeah, that you could just click on and off, which is right. awesome. That's a good yeah. start. This will actually, it was like a little LCD panel in front of your sensor that would adjust the amount of light coming through. And it could very smoothly adjust the amount of neutral density. So you will see these cameras all the time in documentaries because you can be out in direct sunlight and the you're choosing, you know, aperture that you need to cover the scene. And then that neutral density is shifting. And I would love to see that in photo cameras because even if I'm out taking a waterfall shot or something, how cool would it be for me to just say, I want a 10 second exposure and then just drag that neutral density until I get the exposure I want would be fantastic. This really does sound complicated though. <laughs> <laughs> Let me throw one more thing into it. Let's talk about resolution because when we're shooting stills, we're pretty much just you know taking as much resolution as the sensor will give us. But when we're shooting video, that introduces a whole host of things like, do I want to shoot at 4K if I have a camera that can do it? What does that mean in terms of storage, in terms of editing later? Do I even need 4K? Should I be shooting HD? And then my head explodes. And the speed of an SD card you need as well. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah, and the more resolution that you throw uh, at a video camera, the more demanding it is in pretty much every regard. So the amount of batteries that you need to shoot. Everything, yeah. The yeah. storage that you're going to need on your computer, the, the type of computer that you'll need to edit that footage. Like I've got a couple-year-old MacBook Pro here, and you know it was great in 4K, but this year we had two 8K cameras drop, and I'm reviewing a 12K camera right now, and this thing is not oh, cutting it anymore. So, you know. Get yourself one of the new M1 Macs. That's, you'll be surprised how fast it is. As soon as I get a 16, they make a 16, I'm on that. But I'm actually really pushing my wife, like, can you just get a MacBook Air just so I can render 8K video? I bought the cheapest MacBook Air. It's the first Mac I've had with the basic amount of RAM in ages. And it can handle anything I threw at it. Anyway, we're getting off track. So what's the best resolution? <laughs> HD, 4K, 8K, 2K? Yeah. So I'm one of the people who says resolution is not the most important thing when you're looking uh, at video. I mean, the most common camera in the world is an Arri Alexa. That's what all the movies and high budget TV shows are shot on. That's a 3K camera. You know, uh, I'm shooting on a 4K camera right now that can shoot 6K. I have shot 6K to do tests with it and then really never used it again, except for a couple of interviews. So why resolution is important with video uh, are really two things. So first of all, playback. If you're going to be playing that back on a 4K screen, then the extra resolution is nice. But remember, most movie theaters are still just 2K, which is slightly more than 1080p. Um, and I don't hear a lot of people like going back and shouting at the, well, there's no more projectionists. It's yeah, just a computer right. right now. <laughs> but people are fine with that because you're far from the screen. It's just like a billboard in photography, right? You don't need a Hasselblad to shoot a billboard because the viewing distance is so far. You need mm -hmm. a Hasselblad in a gallery where people are right up to it. Same thing when you're looking at video. It's actually your screens at home, like your laptop screen you're really close to is where you can really see the difference between yeah. like a 1080 and a 4K. And then the other thing that's so valuable is cropping room, just like in stills cameras. You know, I love having a high res body. So I do have the option of reframing, things like that. It's the exact same thing in video. And where it can be really useful is with video, a lot of the time you're not going to get two shots at something. Uh, an interview is an example I mentioned where I have actually recorded 6K before because, you know, if 
I, I would rather not say, let's try and do the whole interview from two different angles. Uh, if I only have one camera on set and try and recreate mm -hmm. that same dynamic, I'd rather just shoot it in a wide high resolution master. And if I want a close up of one of the people, I can just punch into that in post. Uh, that's where it can be really useful. But if I were just to shoot something and deliver it online, in a lot of cases, just good old 1080p is fine and everyone's computer and memory cards and everything can handle it, no problem at this point. But even 4K mm. is becoming much less demanding, like you mentioned with those new M1 Macs. It's going to start getting more accessible. So before we started recording, before you came on, Jeff and I were talking and I was saying, you know, what, what's the simplest thing? He says, I don't know, can you get a camcorder? I had no idea that camcorders still existed. And I'm on Barely. Amazon UK, 179 pounds for a 9.2 megapixel Sony full HD camcorder, 30x optical zoom. Is that the solution? Because this really does sound complicated. Is that the solution for someone who just wants to shoot a bunch of videos of their kids is just to buy one of those? Well, the camcorders have one real advantage, which is kind of what we touched on when we talked about the giant broadcast cameras at the play. You get a huge zoom on them with deep depth of field. So I always have people saying like, why can't these cameras focus as well as my camcorder? Your camcorder doesn't focus very well. It has 20 feet in of depth of field. So it doesn't have to do a great job. So they are really mm. great for quick point and shoot. But the counter argument to one of those camcorders is they're very small sensors. They don't have a lot of processing power. So if you're going to be shooting on that wide angle, the 50 millimeter, your smartphone's going to do a better job. Uh, you know, they're just throw it's a bright lens. They're throwing tons of computational stuff and processing power at it to make it do a good job, uh, which isn't the case in a camcorder. But, you know, a camcorder in a bright day, it's going to give you a nice clean image. You're going to get a big zoom on it. But if there's any contrast in that shot, uh, it's the same as shooting it with a point and shoot camera from 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, your, your blacks are going to block up, your highlights are going to clip. Uh, and that's where those bigger sensor cameras do have a very big leg up or something like your smartphone, you know, an iPhone is merging an underexposed and an overexposed image at the same time, you know, 60 times a second and then outputting it as a 30p file for you, uh, 30 frames per second. It's just mashing them together to make up for that deficiency. Uh, and camcorders aren't doing that right now. So for some stuff like you know, outdoor sports with the kids, yeah, camcorders still make sense, but they're mostly, you know, relics of the past. Either your phone or if you're a little more serious about it, a mirrorless camera is going to do a way better job. Would that count even for just like going on vacation? I mean, if somebody wants to get video while they're out, I think the the iPhone is the natural choice, except that you would probably want that zoom. And so there's that that balance of, you know, do I get something specifically for video or, you know, hey, the camera I have can shoot video. Maybe I'll just do that. And you've got all these great lenses you've invested in. You've got all these great lenses, but at the same time, is that just going to make things a lot harder for me? What's the advice there? I've got a great camera that can shoot really good video. Maybe that's just what I do. Yeah, I think that's if something is going to work in a wide angle perspective, then yeah, your phone might be totally sufficient for those wide moments. But if you're out there and you're, you know, brought, you've taken the time and you're dragging the weight around with your photo camera as well, then just bring, like I mentioned, those two neutral density filters, a two and a three stop filter, have it in your bag. Uh, you know, it will slow you down a tiny bit. I'm not going to say that when I go out, I'm 
quickly flipping the switch from photo to video back and forth. Mm -hmm. In a moment, I kind of make the decision, this is a photo moment or this is a video moment. But to be able to bring one tool and have the option to make that choice, I think is still very valuable. And it, again, if people are listening to this, they're into photography, they're going to be bringing the camera anyway. So why not have yeah. some more creative yeah. options? You know, like have the option of shallow depth of field in your back pocket if you want that. Um in video because it can give you a really compelling interesting look i would say that the one most important thing is however you've got to have a camera or a lens that has image stabilization yeah if you're hand holding that's right essential. uh right yeah like i'm a big i'm a huge fan of the monopod i think it's uh the greatest thing like you know i used to drag yep. around a bunch of big broadcast tripod legs but i would say if you watch our show 90 percent of that is shot on a uh, monopod because uh, it's just very quick it's easy it works well for photography and mm -hmm. what's a really cool trick is uh if you just hold it sideways in your hand and move it over until you find the center of gravity on that monopod uh just with it horizontal and then pinch it by that and go for a walk and you'll get kind of a poor man steady cam effect and it makes a huge difference when you want to walk and move with the camera without having to drag out a gimbal or a glide cam or something like that it's ah. just a very quick and easy versatile tool and again it's something that takes up no space in the bag if i yeah. were out doing a commercial production then yeah i'm gonna have a gimbal and a big tripod and a jib but when we're just out and what's about, a jib the only jib i know is on sailboats <laughs> same idea <laughs> uh that'd be like your little crane arm like the boom arm oh like a boom okay to, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so See, I, I did it again the the video terminology yeah. i don't know why they don't just use the same words <laughs> yeah i i've got a gimbal that works with my iphone but don't you need a much bigger gimbal to use with like a a, a real camera yeah, you do. I mean, yeah. the gimbal has to, there's like a, a, a level of what would be a ratio of size to weight or something, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you need a bigger motor for a bigger camera. So right. I have a little Ronin SC. It's not that big. That's kind of my travel gimbal. Um, but you can get to the point with a bigger camera where it's like the motor just can't hack it right now. And yeah. you'll get that jerk in your footage or something like that. So bigger gimbals do do a better job with bigger cameras. Uh, that's why we use a bigger camera as our A camera on the show all the time. It's a Panasonic S1H, but I'm still hanging on to my micro four thirds stuff. Cause if I want to have a gimbal option, then you got a little tiny lightweight camera. I can bring a tiny lightweight gimbal and that's my, you know, if I want to quickly grab a big tracking shot or something like that, I would rather do that and lose a little bit of quality, but have stable motion than have my big camera on a gimbal that it can't support or just hand holding it which is going to look terrible i'm thinking that that new fuji xe4 that's coming out soon would be the ideal camera for that because it's small and light and you wouldn't need a big gimbal if you're using a gimbal it's brilliant because uh, it is such a small light body the trade-off with that guy is there's no ibis in it so if you right. did want to quickly grab something from the hip and i'm not talking a walking shot but like you mentioned using a telephoto lens ibis helps so much just to be able to correct well the, the the kit the 18 to 55 millimeter kit lens has ibis so that would probably be enough right well to a point because the lens it's only going to correct for pan and tilt uh when you're holding ah it. right where if i'm using a telephoto a lot of the time i'm also concerned i'm getting a little roll in my hands i'm leaning my head back and forth to frame the shot up so the camera's tilting and it, the lens can't correct for that that's why we make right. such a big deal of that five axis in body yeah. stabilization yeah. 
it's not as critical for photo, but for video, I really don't want any of that weirdness showing Fair up point. in the frame. So that's why, you know, whenever possible, uh, like I said, I have an X-T3, but it does find itself locked off or it's on a gimbal. I don't tend yeah. to use that camera handheld very often yeah. where, you know, you mentioned the X-E4. There's that amazing XS10 for a hundred bucks more that yeah. has IBIS. Uh, yeah. I think for the majority of people, if you're interested in hybrid shooting, that's the way to go. We are both Fuji shooters, but what are there any other brands that people can look at if they want a good small camera to do both photo and video? Well, Fuji's made huge steps, so I do recommend them a lot. And okay. if you want a beautiful image straight out of camera, like those film simulations work in video as well. Uh, yeah. And I love them. If I have something that's really quick turnaround uh, that I just I can't sit on my computer and edit it, I'll use a Fuji uh, a lot of the time. Uh, but there are other makes that take video very seriously, like Panasonic and Sony have been making video cameras for decades. You know, they know how to yeah. do it. And that does carry through into their mirrorless. Um, but now we're even seeing Nikon is starting to take it quite seriously, which I was not expecting. Leica. Leica brought out a killer video camera. Yeah. You know, <laughs> which one is like that? The, the Q2? Uh, uh, the SL2 and the SL2. Yeah. Yeah. The Q2 monochrome I want as a video okay because true black and white is yep. just so gorgeous but uh that, it's that's to what justify. i want too yeah but uh, i i wouldn't want to be limited to the 28 millimeter lens on that that's a bit too wide for me yeah yeah absolutely my 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 lust has always been for the leica m monochrome um because you know black and white real black and white uh, and I saw the Q2 and I thought that might be an interesting alternative, but it's too limiting. And they don't sell the kind of thing that Fuji has for the X100 series to the the lens, the, the converters, yeah. the TCL, WCL, the converters to make it longer and wider. So Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that. I'm just hoping that true black and white sensors become more of a thing. Like I think Fujifilm is the natural company to bring out that yeah. you know if there was a black and white i don't care if it bring out a black and white xt2 i don't even need it to be current just give yeah. me something <laughs> i can put my fuji glass on that shoots true black and white it is a different look you know they can try and simulate it as much as you want but your bayer pattern's always gonna reduce resolution and low light and it's it's gonna be a different aesthetic at the end of the day which is why you know if there was no advantage to true black and white cameras then red and you know, they would not be, or in phase one, wouldn't be making true black and white cameras, right? Right. The so those are cameras would say, that are made yeah. for shooting cinema, right? Uh, well, the phase is a photo camera, like the phase one. Um, right. They make a true monochrome, you know, I think it's like $80,000. Exactly, like yeah. Uh, and then the red monochrome has made a bunch of black and white movies that we all know from recent years. And yeah, yeah I, there there has to be an advantage if a producer is willing to throw that amount of money to shoot something in black and white on a black and white camera. If it was just like we see all the time on the forums, like, oh, that's just, you know, an artistic, you know, no real yeah. purpose to it. I, I don't think people would be spending that kind of money on those sort of tools. So there is a real legitimacy to it. Okay. Well, Jordan, thank you. This has been incredibly informative. And I'm going to have to go back and listen to this again to catch up because um, there are so many things to think. Oh, one more thing. What is this F-log thing that you keep talking about that this camera doesn't have the F-log so it's no good? What does that mean? Is that like a kind of lookup table thing? Exactly. Yeah. So there's 
a log profile is, let's look at it kind of like a JPEG, because uh, raw video is still quite rare and it takes up a lot of space to do. So let's say your camera only shoots JPEG, but you still want to have a little bit of room in the edit to play with those files. Uh, you know, the classic example on Canon cameras would, was people would use the neutral profile and turn the contrast and the saturation all the way down. And then afterwards, in your editing, you could, you know, kind of push it one way or the other. The log is that taken to a very extreme level. So it's just like you're shooting a JPEG. It's 8-bit or 10-bit color, nothing like the great 12 or 14-bit RAW files we have. But it's so flat that it gives you the option to make those creative choices afterwards. And it can pack a lot more usable dynamic range into the shot. So it takes some work to learn how to work with those files. But once you do, uh, actually, um, on DP Review, I think it's coming out this week, we're going to have an article coming out about why, you know, with raw video, we don't see as much benefit as we'd expect with raw photography, because these log files do such a good job of packing a lot of usable information into a small space, you can get very close to raw just with that compressed format. And then you stretch it out, add saturation, add contrast, put the midtones where you want them. Uh, and you'll just get a much more usable thing, but still with nice small files. Uh, why I love F-Log so much is uh, that Fuji's brought out their lookup tables for both Provia, uh, which is just a great, it's, it's a beautiful in-camera profile, and their Eterna, which gives you quite a bit of flexibility in post, but still a really beautiful look. So you can shoot in log, you've got more dynamic range, but then afterwards, once you've chosen the exposure you want, you slap that LUT on there and you wind up with uh, an image with a lot more flexibility in terms of where the highlights and shadows fall, but that's pretty ready to go. Um, unlike a lot of other manufacturers where you're spending a lot of time to really finesse that and make it into something pleasing as well as something that doesn't clip the shadows and highlights. So, I mean, we could do, uh, we could do an hour on LUTs and log recording if you ever <laughs> wanted to do that. It's a huge, uh, it, it's something I wouldn't really recommend if you're just getting started. Back when I worked at the camera store, there were so many people who'd be like, I heard log is the best. This is my first video camera. I'm going to record my family video and log. And it's like, you have just committed to 20 hours in front of your computer regrading this <laughs> footage where if you'd just shot it in the camera profile that you like anyways, you could have dodged that whole thing. Uh, so I don't yeah. shoot log all the time. I shoot it when it's high contrast or there's unpredictable situations happening. If I'm in a controlled shot where Chris is standing in the shade, uh, then I'm just going to shoot it on a picture profile that I like the look of. And then when I'm in post, it's not that much work for me, but less predictable or if i'm on a film set then yeah everything is going to be done in log because i want my colorist afterwards to have as many options as they possibly can wow okay thank you jordan very much <laughs> no this has been really informative i had no idea that this was such a can of worms i, I guess that's why i never why i just look at the menus on my camera all the the film the video menus and i just don't understand them well, one thing I can really recommend is uh, when we first started with DP Review, I think it was like our third video, we did a how video exposure works for photographers. And, you know, I love the podcast medium, but it's not the best for conveying no. the, mo the motion yeah. cadence of various <laughs> shutter speeds. So I would really recommend if they're curious, uh, you know, it's a little 10 minute video, but it's very visual. And that'll be a great kind of entryway into, you know, not how to become a professional cinematographer, because there's a reason film school is two years long, but to go out and shoot some you know, fun video with the techniques that they already know from taking pictures. Okay. We'll have links to all those in the show notes. Jordan, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got? So I actually have a video-related thing, believe it or not. 
I have to do some video work. And so the timeliness of this episode really worked out in my favor. And so I bought, it's a little touchscreen field monitor. It's the Feel World, terrible name, Feel World F5 Pro 5.5 inch touchscreen DSLR. Uh, of course, there'll be a link in the show notes. And basically, this is something so that I can see myself while I'm shooting. So I have Fuji X-T3 and it doesn't have a screen that would like swing around. And uh, some of the shooting that I'm going to need to do is going to be out in the field. And so rather than sort of wondering if I have framed up my shot, especially because it's just going to be me out there shooting, um, I decided that this would be a good investment. It's only uh, right now it's $170. It's not super full featured. Uh, I learned in a little crash course of of these <laughs> field monitors, uh, you can get really, really expensive. You can get some that actually record the video to the monitor. This is not the absolute bare bones. You can get them for like about $100 with fewer features. And this was just well-reviewed. Uh, it's got a touchscreen, but basically it's just a way for me to see what I'm shooting. And in that case, you know, shooting myself for a project. That's interesting. Um, I, I don't do video, as I said in the episode, but I, I understand the need. So you're basically going to set this on a tripod and you're going to want to have that screen to make sure that your head stays in the right position. Is that it? Exactly. And, and to make sure I'm in focus, make sure it's framed, it, all that. Okay. And what do you have this week? I have a video, which is – it has nothing to do with shooting video. Um <laughs> Magnum Photos has a few video courses on what they call Magnum Learn. And I signed up for one by Alex Soth called Photographic Storytelling. Um, if you check on the Photoactive Podcast Facebook group, I posted uh, a thing from Magnum Learn where it was a 20% discount. And that's kind of what clenched it for me. I'm really interested in Alex Soth's work, not just because I really like his photography, but he, he's very good at talking about it. Uh, I've seen a bunch of videos where he talks about his work. Um, he's got a lot of influences that cross influences that I have. Like um, he was talking about John Cage and Zen and he's a big fan of Vim Vendors and, and stuff like that. So I, this kind of video course, it's not teaching you how to use your camera. It's you're hearing from an accomplished artist where he's talking about um, I've, I've watched the first five or six videos, um, how he got started, uh, his influences, how he develops projects, etc. And what you're getting from it is the not so much the backstory, but the meta story of what goes through a photographer's mind as he does something like this. Um, there are some case studies where you follow him to a particular place where he's going to do some shooting. Um, there's discussions about editing and photo books and, and a number of his specific projects. Um, the normal price is $99. The discount of 20% makes it, you know, about $80. It's probably expensive for some people, but I think it's really interesting to see what photographers have to say about this sort of stuff. So it's Alex Soth, Photographic Storytelling, link in the show notes. It also strikes me as one of those talents that some people think that all photographers have that I think very few photographers have, which is to really accurately explain their process and talk about what's going through their head rather than just, yeah, I showed up and this was pretty and I took a picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I like about Alex Soth is that he looks to me 
the way he dresses, the way he talks like a working class photographer, not like an elite artist. And mm-hmm. he's really down to earth. And sometimes you'll take, I don't know, Annie Leibovitz, who's this really elite photographer with this whole team working with her. And it's not the same thing. And so a lot of his work is with an 8x10 view camera, the kind where you put the cloth over your head. Oh, so yeah. it's a really different kind of photography. He explains he uses different cameras for different things. But he often wants to use that because it slows down the process. And you get you get the understanding that's come from decades of photographic experience that someone's sharing. And even if you're not going to shoot an 8x10 view camera, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactive cast that's photoactive cast in one word you can subscribe to photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on apple podcasts see the links on our website and think about leaving us a rating or review in itunes or in your podcast app